This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Article 15 is of original sin. We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind. Now, the article here refers to corruption, which has to do with this. But I'm struck always when I read this article by that word extended. And by the way, that's an actual, that's a, a, a accurate translation too of the French. The idea is original sin at the moment of Adam's disobedience was by God extended over the whole of the human race at the very moment that Adam sinned. Now I say that's a hint of federal guilt, but it's there. But the emphasis is on corruption, which is a corruption of the whole nature and an hereditary disease wherewith infants themselves are infected even in their mother's womb, and which produceth in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof. I want you to notice that word root. That's the organic development of sin right there in its beginning. Original corruption is the root of all sorts of sin. And therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. There you have another hint of that federal idea in the creeds. 1561. 1561. Forty-two years after the Reformation, there was a hint of that federal idea sufficient to condemn all mankind, nor is it by any means abolished or done away by baptism and so on and so forth. Sin always issues forth from this woeful source as water from a fountain. Notwithstanding, it is not imputed to the children of God unto condemnation, but by his grace and mercy is forgiven them. So what do we have, therefore? Well, we have two things. This is called original sin, as it is in uh, Article 14. Original sin is original guilt and original pollution, both. That's what happened at the fall. Now, other things happened at the fall, too. There were consequences of Adam's sin for the entire creation. And uh, I want to deal with that. That's part of the organic development of sin. But uh, I'll come to that in just a bit. I hope this is sufficient to make this clear anyway. Uh, but I'm going to ask at this point, are there any questions on it so that we can be sure that you understand what this is about? Let me add this. I said a little while ago how many of you actually confess your sin of eating of the forbidden tree. Probably not many of you, if 
any at all. But there is one way in which you and I do confess that sin. At least we should. At least I think many, if not most of us do. And that is this way. We confess our responsibility for our own depraved natures. That we do. That is really the same thing as confessing our sin which we committed in Adam. That we do that is evident from what the Heidelberg Catechism says once again in Lord's Day uh, 21. Lord's Day 21 deals, as you know, with the Holy Catholic Church of Christ, with the forgiveness of sins, and with the communion of the saints. Lord's Day 21 asks this question. You can look it up. What does it mean that we believe in the forgiveness of sins? What does that mean? Well, says the Heidelberg Catechism in, a, in an amazingly profound uh, answer, that means not only that we have the forgiveness of our sins for the sake of Christ's satisfaction that God will no more remember our sins, then it adds this, neither my corrupt nature God will not remember my corrupt nature against which I must struggle all my life long, but he will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ. He will forgive my corrupt nature. I confess that. I don't see, personally, if a child of God takes sin seriously, I don't see personally how he can escape confessing that when we are on our knees before God to confess our sins, and we are serious about this business of confession, and we lay our lives open before the eyes of God in every respect and in all that we do and say and think and will, then we come to the conclusion, as any child of God must, that we are incapable in any respect of doing anything good at all. That's inevitable. And the question naturally forms itself in our minds. Why is that? Why am I incapable of doing anything good? And the answer is ready at hand. My nature is corrupt. I have depraved nature. Whose fault is that? That's mine. When David in Psalm 51 prays, I was conceived in iniquity, and in sin did my mother bring me forth. He's confessing part of his sin. I am this way because of what I did. Nobody else's fault but my own. If it were anybody else's fault but mine, I wouldn't have to confess sins at all. Then my sins wouldn't be my fault. But the very fact that they are my fault means that when they come forth out of a corrupt nature, that nature is my responsibility. I think, although the Bible, as far as I know, does not explain that to us, I think that the Bible does make clear in many instances that guilt is transmitted, imputed through the Father. And Christ had no human father. 
think that makes the virgin birth also necessary. Uh, it's not perhaps the main reason why it's necessary, because Christ is God with us. But the fact that he had no human father meant that the guilt of Adam's sin could not be imputed to him, for imputation is through the father. Same thing is true, of course, of the pollution of sin. The conception of Christ in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit prevented the depravity of Mary's nature to be communicated to Christ. You know, that's the question of Christ. But you know, that's an interesting question. Today, for example, is a big, big uh, brohuha on about whether or not homosexuality and drunkenness and such things is communicated through the genes. I, I'm gay. I was born this way. I can't help it. I got it in my genes. Well, now, I'm aware of the fact, of course, that the people say that because they want to escape the responsibility for it. But it's true, though. It's true. All of sin is communicated through the genes because of total depravity of the, the organic passing on of a corrupt human nature with the result that Every single one of us, without exception, has the potential in his nature to commit every solitary sin which is committed under the face of the heavens. It's in the genes. Of course it is. It's in the genes. But at the same time, that doesn't relieve a man of the responsibility for it. Every time I hear that, I think, yes, of course, but that's because of original sin. You can't Escape the responsibility for your sin by appealing to the fact that your nature is depraved, although that isn't, of course, what they mean to say. They talk about genetic defects. Well, there are genetic defects, profoundly spiritual genetic defects. You better believe it. But they, they don't mean that. But it's true, though. It's true. And we ought not to forget that. None of us, not one of us even is, immune from any sin. I know there are some sins of which one is more, towards which one is more inclined than others, and that differs with the individual for many different reasons. But nevertheless, any individual person is capable of any sin. You and I as well. You must not take anything for granted in your own life, in your battle against sin. Oh, that sin holds no allure for me. There's no temptation involved in that sin. Let him that thinketh he standeth beware lest he fall. Our natures are capable of any sin, no matter how vile. Because it's in the genes, because it's in the nature, it's embedded in the very nature. So, Christ was preserved from that by the conception wrought through the Holy Spirit. And the same thing was true of guilt. An organic unity is, in the human race, a corporate unity. By a corporate unity, I mean a legally constituted unity. 
And while the human race is a corporate unity and a legally constituted unity, there are, as I said last time, within the organism of the human race, smaller organisms that also constitute corporate unities or federal unities, legal unities. It's interesting that that should be the case. Uh, and it's interesting how God works that out in the history of the human race, too. I can't go into it in detail, but let me just draw quickly a few lines. The family is the basic structure of society. The family of Adam is ultimately the human race. Read, for example, Luke 3, who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. The human race is a family. It's a corporate unity, but within that family of the human race, there is the family through the institution of marriage. Every other institution in society developed and there we go again with this word, organically out of the family. There are, what, three or four such institutions. There is the institution of the state that grew out of the family. There is the institution of uh, the shop or the relationship of employer and employee that grew out of the family. And help me, there's one more yet. Can't think of it right off. In each case, you have, an, have a unit in which are the relationships of authority and obedience. That's why when the Heidelberg Catechism discusses, for example, the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, that means not only show respect to your father and mother, but to all in authority over you. Oh, the church. The home produces the state, the church, and the shop. Those three institutions arise out of the family, organically develop out of the family. They're all institutions of authority and obedience. Why are they that? Well, because they are corporate federal institutions. And the result of it is that this same idea holds true for them. Put it into practice. And this is, this is disturbing and troublesome, but the fact of the matter is that the United States of America is a federal unity, and what the government does, I am responsible for. You gripe about the fact that your tax money is thrown overseas and spent on silly projects and wasted on pork barrel projects. You're responsible for that. You complain about the fact that Abortion has become official policy in this country, sanctioned by the Supreme Court. You're responsible for that. It's your sin. Did you ever think of that? That's, a, that's because of the fact that the government, the magistrate, is the federal head of the citizens of the country. In practice, that's the way it works out, too. When the government declares war, you say, I register my negative vote government doesn't give a hoot if you register your negative vote or not. And if the government says, come and fight, you better come and fight or you'll wind up in jail. 
And you can protest all you please that this is, you didn't have a voice in the matter and it's not your fault that the country's at war and you object to it, makes no difference. You better fight. And if you were in England in World War II or in Germany in World War II, you could do all the protesting you pleased, but your house would get bombed just as well as everybody else's. Why? Well, because you're responsible for the government's declaration of war and accountable to God. You understand what that means, accountable to God. Now, the same thing is true in, in every institution of society. Because it's true in the home. When a father is a drunkard, is the father the only one who suffers? Or does the wife suffer and the children suffer as well? And what about the second commandment? I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. All of these corporate units within the human race are also corporate entities in which is the same relationship that exists between Adam and the human race. That is a, a frightening thing. Now, the scriptures are full of this, and I haven't got time to go into it in, in detail, but I call your attention to the fact, a few instances of it, that when Achan stole goods out of Jericho and hid them, nobody in Israel knew what he had done. It was a secret. It was a secret sin. But the nation of Israel was defeated by the men of Ai, and 38 soldiers, as a matter of fact, were killed by the soldiers of Ai. And when Joshua, stunned by it, inquired of the Lord, the Lord says, there's sin in the nation. That's why. They didn't even know. They didn't even know Achan had done it. But nevertheless, the whole nation was responsible. After the return from captivity, you read in the book of Nehemiah, the prayer of Ezra. It's an astounding prayer. And it's astounding especially for this reason, that he confesses before God the sins of the people. Not only the sins of the people which had been committed at the time when Ezra was making this prayer, but the sins of the nation that had brought Israel to captivity. And he confesses them as his sins, his own sins. Same thing is true of Daniel. In that beautiful prayer of Daniel that's recorded in the prophecy which he wrote, when he prays for the return of the captives, I haven't got time to read it now, we have sinned. Our fathers have worshipped idols. And this calamity has befallen us. And we are the ones who have transgressed thy commandments. How could Daniel say that? Except that he had that deep and profound sense of responsibility for the sins of the nation. So it is in the church, too. In the church. There is no possibility of the kind of talk that says, I know my church is, a, is guilty of grievous sins, but I can stay reformed. That, that talk is impossible. Such a person is responsible before God for the sins of the church to which he belongs. And you are responsible before God for the sins of the church to which you belong. The congregation 
and the denomination. So true is that, that it's a hard fact of life that if you persist in that kind of argumentation, you suffer the consequences. I have an uncle. No, he's dead now. He's gone to be with the Lord. He left the churches in 1953. He told me again and again, I can stay reformed. He was bitter. He couldn't, of course, so he would come over every so often, complain. Say to him, Uncle Jim, don't complain to me. You know what you have to do. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. He says, never mind. Well, finally, he couldn't take it any longer, so he came back. And we were thankful for that. But he lost his children. And he came weeping more than once to me. I lost my children. He said, it's my fault. It's my fault. The Lord isn't mocked, you see. You may say, but I didn't sin. I never approved of the evils of the church of which I was a part. But you did, though. You did when you stayed there. And when you refused to leave a church that blasphemed the name of God and denied his truth. And you're responsible for that before God. I'm sure he went to heaven. But nevertheless, he went lost in his generations. That's what happened. So that's part of all of this. That's part of federal corporate responsibility. How do we escape? How do we escape the responsibilities that are ours for the sins of our nation? We're obviously not going to turn the nation around. We're not going to persuade the Supreme Court to make rulings in favor of uh, rulings against abortion. In fact, I don't, I'm not at all sure we ought to try. We escape the responsibility for these things by refusing to have a part in them ourselves, one. Secondly, by witnessing against the evil so that our witness is loud and clear that we are opposed to these evils and confessing these sins before God and confessing our responsibility for them. Then the Lord pardons us. Then the Lord says, although you are a citizen in the United States of America, I will not hold you accountable for the terrible sin of murder of infants that rages like a wildfire through this country. The Lord forgives. But those three things have to be done in order for us to escape that kind of responsibility. So that's an important point. Any other questions? Okay, then we're going to go on. Now we're going to come to the organic development of sin which is really our subject for tonight. The organic development of sin takes place in connection with three distinct elements. The first element is that Adam's sin was a root sin, as we noticed in the uh, Confession of Faith. A root sin. It produced a tree. Second element is the cultural mandate. You know what the cultural mandate is. God's command to Adam and Eve in paradise. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That's the cultural mandate. That was an important uh, 
command of God. The third element is this business we were just talking about. Federal and organic relationships among men. Those are the three elements that are involved in the whole question of the development, the organic development of sin. I'm going to start with this one uh, for reasons that will become obvious in a moment. There are two errors that are involved in connection with this whole organic development of sin that I consider sufficiently important that we ought to notice them briefly. The one error is the error of common grace. Not the common grace that is involved in a favorable attitude of God towards all men as expressed in the first point and the well-meant offer of the gospel. Not that common grace so much, but the common grace of the second and third points, which were the common grace of invented by Dr. Abram Kuyper and developed in his massive three-volume work, the Gemeine Grazi, Common Grace, three thick volumes. Reverend Huxema subjects that entire treatise of Kuyper on Common Grace to analysis and criticism in his book, Sonda and Hanada of Sin and Grace. That book has now been translated, and it's in the hands, in its final form, is it's in the hands of the RFPA. Natalie tells me there's no way she can get it out before the end of the year. I have to twist her arm a little bit on that, but we'll see. But it should be out in translation before the end of the year, right now. <laughs> the common grace of Kuiper is briefly this, that when Adam fell in paradise, he would have died if it had not been for God's common grace. Immediately at the fall, God began the work of common grace. Kuiper uses the figure in his uh, massive work that when Adam in paradise ate of the forbidden tree, he, as it were, uh, swallowed a massive dose of a toxic poison. I think Kuiper called it Paris Green, which was the worst poison he could think of in his day, I guess. That was of such a terrible toxic nature that Adam would have fallen dead at the foot of the tree immediately if God had not intervened with his common grace. So God gave to Adam a massive dose of common grace which resulted in Adam vomiting up a great deal of the poison so that Adam did not die although the poison had begun to work in his system and had some very serious effects. Now, that's the figure Kuiper uses. What he means by that is this, that common grace had two results. Number one was that Adam was not totally depraved because common grace uh, prevented the total corruption of his nature. And two, common grace preserved the creation in its present useful, beautiful form. If it had not been for common grace, 
Adam would have dropped dead at the foot of the tree, or if that hadn't happened, Adam would have become a devil. And the creation would have become a wilderness, which was totally uninhabitable. So common grace operates in the creation too. Now, says Kuiper, the, the, the influence of that common grace made it possible for Adam and his posterity to still fulfill the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Adam could still do that. His posterity could still do it. So the result of it is, the result of common grace is this, says Kuiper, that since the fall, there are two streams that run through history. The stream of the human race, dominated by common grace, and the stream of the work of salvation in Christ through particular and sovereign grace. This is the world, and this is the church. Now, <clears throat> these two operate independently of each other. Obviously, the people of God don't have common grace. The world doesn't have particular grace. The church is busy with the work of preaching the gospel, instructing the children of the church. The world is busy subduing the earth. And all that the world produces, therefore, is a result of common grace. All that it produces, all of its inventions, all of its developments in the, in the areas of technology and of industry and of medicine, all its marvelous accomplishments in combating disease, all of its culture, all of its art, all of its architecture, all of its music, all of its uh, uh, ability to make this world a better place in which to live by means of hospitals and other institutions of mercy. It's all part of subduing the earth while the church is busy with the work of the church. Now, while these two streams are going on through history, says Kuiper, there is a certain contact between the two, certain relationship between the two, because they're both in the world after all. What is that? Well, that relationship is of two kinds. In the first place, the fruits of common grace can be used by the church. Uh, you can buy CDs of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and play it and enjoy it. You can go to the Chicago Museum of Art and you can enjoy a, a, an exhibition of the paintings of Matisse or whoever, Monet. You can profit from the world's medical technology when you are sick and the world can use its technology to make you better and so on and so forth. All kinds of ways in which the church profits by the accomplishments of the world. So great are these accomplishments of the world, says Kuiper, that they will even be preserved into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. God is so pleased with the fruits of common grace that he will reap the harvest of all of these wonderful works of the wicked and take them to heaven, even though the wicked ultimately will go to hell. But there is another area in which these two stand related to each other, and that is this. 
that because of common grace, that is, because both are grace, after all, and grace of God, there is this whole area in between the world and the church, which is an area of neutrality. And that area of neutrality is where these meet and these meet together and are able to cooperate in a common cause and in various common causes that serve the welfare of mankind. It was because of this that hooks him up in a truly prophetic way prior to 1924 said, if the common grace of Kuiper is ever adopted by the church, it will result in nothing else but crass worldliness. And everybody knows that's exactly what has happened. Because of this area of neutrality, where the world and the church can cooperate, where they can form friendships, where they can engage in activities of mutual concern and importance to both, and so on and so on and so on. Now... <clears throat> I don't want to go into the criticism of this, but this idea is at the bottom of all postmillennialism and reconstructionism. That is the general idea which is gaining favor in our day and which is becoming increasingly uh, prominent that the kingdom of Christ will be realized here in this world before it is finally realized in the coming of Christ at the end of time. That the world is getting better and better because creation is being subdued and we're making progress and we're putting the powers of the creation to man's use and it's all going to result in a better world which will in fact as the church and the world cooperate, make this world the kingdom of Christ, which when he comes again at the end of time, he will claim to be his own and take with him into glory. That notion is, in my estimation, frighteningly dangerous. We have to do battle with that. Gary North, who up until the... Uh, Y2K fiasco was probably the most articulate spokesman for postmillennialism, made this comment in one of his uh, monthly newsletters. The only real opposition we face in our efforts to promote postmillennialism is found in the consistent amillennialism of the Protestant Reformed churches. That's what he said in one of his, his articles. Which means, of course, that every denomination has caved in more or less to the views of the post-mills. And Gary North was not bragging and not exaggerating. It's true. Even the United Reformed Church has post-millennial ministers in its ranks and refuses to condemn post-millennialism. It's born out of the womb of common grace, however, and we ought not to forget that. Now, all of this I wouldn't be so troubled about except for the fact that let's get it through our heads that this is exactly the notion, whether consciously or unconsciously, which is the father of that idea born in the minds of so many that we're in this world to make this world a better place to live. 
by hook or by crook. We're not. We are not. It isn't the church's business. To witness against the evils in the world is one thing. Important, crucial, our calling, the way I say in which we escape from the responsibility for the world's sins. To cooperate with ungodly institutions or ungodly people, even for noble causes, dead wrong. I can tell you a story that involved me a number of years ago. I don't know how many, quite a few years ago. I had a call one day from the Right to Life headquarters in Washington, D.C., from a vice president. Would you be willing to cooperate in drawing up a petition to present to our president expressing our disapproval of abortion? We want to get hundreds of thousands of signatures, and if you will cooperate with us, you may even be part of the committee to bring this petition to the president in his Oval Office. I said to him, sure, sure, I'll cooperate. I'm against abortion, but I'll tell you what. I'll cooperate only on the grounds that abortion is contrary to the scriptures and that my objections against abortion are based on scripture alone. Oh, he said, oh, tell you what, I'll call you back someday. And I never heard from him again. Of course not. Of course not. Because the Right to Life organization is, a, is based on humanistic principles, and they want a broad-based organization in which the people of God and the world can cooperate together to fight the terrible sin of abortion. That's not our calling. That idea is born out of this structure and is a very dangerous idea and we must not get trapped into it. We may not like casinos in Michigan, but the church has no business getting involved in a fight against casinos. We've got our hands full preaching the gospel. Let's do that because it's the gospel which is the final thing that counts in the world. The final thing. And ultimately, whether there are casinos in Michigan or not, isn't going to make one particle of difference as to whether the church goes to heaven or doesn't go to heaven. Our business is heaven. Now, this whole idea of Dr. Abram Kuyper, which is devilishly clever and dominates the thinking of the church today, is smashed to smithereens by the doctrine of the organic development of sin. You believe that and you hold to that and you never can find any room for this nonsense. The world is not getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. And it's getting worse and worse because it is part of God's purpose to cause sin to develop under his sovereign control and direction. He has his reasons for that, good reasons for that, why sin must develop. What does it mean that sin develops in connection with the cultural mandate? Well, it means this. Maybe I ought to pause at this moment. Uh, are there questions? Am I carrying you along? Are you following what I'm saying? If you have questions, say it. John. Did they call that 
you mean this conception of Kuiper? Yeah, well, no. Two-tracks theology is really when you, uh, a theology that has in it uh, contradictory elements. God loves all men and God loves only the elect. You ride this track, God loves all men. You ride this track, God loves the elect. But you, you, you ride both tracks. That's two-track theology. This is really, Kuiper would insist this is one-track theology, all right. But nevertheless, your point is well taken that there is a kind of a dualism in history because of this. There are two streams in history, two histories of the world. One is the history of the church in the world, and the other is the history of common grace. And they're both pretty nice histories. And they're both under the grace of God, and they're both doing God's purpose, even though this happens to be among wicked men. That's a dualism in history. But it's not what is usually known as two-track theology. That's a little different. But your point is, is well taken. Dina. Dina's question is, what about the antithesis? And she asked, did, did he just ignore the antithesis? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. He simply ignored the antithesis. There, you're right. Where is the antithesis in this? Where is it? Can't find it. No. But don't forget, the antithesis is the result of sovereign particular grace. Common grace is the destruction of it. Yes, Rod. <coughs> the, the common grace of the upskating of 1834, de Kock and Van Ralty and Brummelkamp and Skolta, that common grace was called Hanada because it taught the well-meant offer of the gospel and God's attitude of favor towards all men. Hanada, that's the Dutch word for grace. Kuiper came along, and Kuiper hated the well-meant offer with a passion. Wrote a book against it, in fact. But he still wanted common grace, but it, so he couldn't call it Hanada, al Hanada. So what are you going to call it? I want a common grace, but I don't want the common grace of these people who hold to the well-meant offer. So he invented a new term, Kamena Hrazi. That's how there's two terms. Kanada and Karazzi are the same thing, yes. Both mean grace. Yeah. Anyone else? Any questions? Oh boy, our time is up. Let's go just a few minutes yet. If you have to leave, uh, you may leave without penalty. The, the organic development of sin is in connection with a cultural mandate. Why? Because of the fact that when man fell, Although he became totally depraved, he remained a man. And although, and because he remained a man, he's still capable of subduing the earth. I think it's harder for him to subdue the earth now that he's fallen for various reasons. Takes him longer. It's more strenuous work, but he still subdues the earth. He's capable of doing that. He's still king. He didn't lose his position as king. What happened was that now, instead of becoming king under God, he became king under Satan. Instead of doing the will of God in God's world, he chose to do the will of Satan. 
So the difference is not in his inability to subdue the earth. He can still do that. He can still discover electricity and still split the atom and still accomplish marvelous deeds in the fields of, of technology and medicine. But he does it in the service of Satan. That's the difference. Everything, whether consciously or unconsciously, he is under the control of Satan, under the direction of Satan, and doing what he does for Satan's purposes. And it is therefore a fact that sin develops organically in connection with the subduing of the earth because the more man uncovers of the powers of creation and puts them to his own use, the more he can sin. That's why sin develops. He can use the powers of the creation to sin. It is my judgment that by the time the Lord returns, and I don't think that's so far in the distant future, man will have succeeded in uncovering all the powers which God has put in this creation and will have succeeded in harnessing all of these powers and will have succeeded in putting them to his own use, whether they be the powers of the, the atom or the powers of the electron or the powers of DNA molecules. He will have uncovered them all. He will have come to an understanding of them all. He will have put them to man's use. I think although technology is expanding at such fantastic rates that it's almost impossible to keep up with it, I really think we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen a thing. And it seems to me that what God said at the time of the Tower of Babel is really going to be taking place in reality in the next years before the Lord returns. You remember when the Lord came down and confused the language of people at Babel, the Lord said, this is one reason why I confused their language, languages and caused them to disperse. Because else... Nothing will be restrained of man. This will restrain him in his purposes. I think we've reached the point where God says there is nothing anymore that restrains man. Nothing. I give him over completely to his own willful way to do as he pleases. And I think the result is going to be that as man uncovers powers yet to be discovered, and puts them to human use, that the gadgets which they have invented now will begin to look like kindergarten toys, and the stupendous things of which they are capable will be completely mind-boggling. I think, in fact, that when Revelation 13 talks about miracles which Antichrist is able to perform to deceive the world, they are advances in technology and uses of God's powers in creation, which 98% of the world doesn't understand because of their intricacy and because of the fact that only few are able to penetrate the mysteries of the creation. But when all the powers of the creation are put to man's use, 
then sin has developed, as far as the creation is concerned, fully, you see. No more development of sin is possible in that way because everything in the creation is now in the service of sin. That's a major factor in the organic development of sin. So although it is true that the earth is being subdued, things are not getting better and better. And any guy with half a brain can see it, it seems to me. That although we're faced with all these marvelous discoveries, there is no improvement in man. But man becomes worse and worse. What Michael was talking about a few moments ago, the tremendous potential of the DNA molecule, how is man using it in dreadful, dreadful, godless, corrupt ways? That's the development of sin, first of all. Now, we have to look at these other two uh, elements, too, and we'll wait with that till next time. But I want to point out, I want to end where I started so that we are not left with everything blackness and gloom. God is in, in control of this aspect of the federal and organic development of sin too. He is. We believe in the restraint of sin. Don't you ever forget it. Our quarrel with the Christian Reformed Church is not over the fact that they believe in the restraint of sin and we don't. Oh no, we believe in the restraint of sin. We don't believe that the restraint of sin is brought about by common grace which makes man better than totally depraved so that he can use God's creation in good ways to God's glory and for the benefit of the church. We believe that God's Restraint of sin is by his sovereignty over sin and that he has his own purposes in bringing sin to its full realization and those purposes are these. That he may be justified in all that he does. That when the wicked are brought everlastingly into the awful, awful horror of hell forever and ever and ever and ever it may be clearly manifest that God is just and righteous in all that he does. There will not be one devil or one wicked man in hell who will ever say, I don't deserve this. This punishment is too great. My sin did not warrant this. God will demonstrate that sin is that bad that it warrants hell. And in the second place, and that brings me to another point that I mentioned a while ago, salvation means to be plucked out of that, of that headlong rush of wicked men in the service of Satan to reveal the deepest corruption and depravity of their hearts and to be brought again into fellowship with God. That's salvation. From this, from Adam's sin, from my guilt in Adam's sin, from my corrupt nature, from my daily sin, from my place in the world, from my responsibilities for all the corruptions of the world, 
for my use of God's creation. I am delivered by grace. The cross and the power of the cross and the power of salvation shines against that awful background, you see. And when the believer catches some glimpse of that and how, how Paul means exactly what he says in Galatians 1.3, has delivered us, he has delivered us from this present evil world. And the believer says, what a marvelous deliverance of grace. Just grace. That's all. Just grace. Sovereign grace. Saving grace. Grace shown to me, a miserable sinner. That's why sin develops. I would be there. Now I am here. Why? Grace, that's all. That's all. That's enough to celebrate the grace of God eternally in the everlasting kingdom of Christ. Tonight we come to what, beyond any doubt, is the subject which I enjoy the most. No question about that at all. I can't really think of any other subject with which I would prefer to deal than the subject of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the scriptures in a number of passages speak to us of that. And whenever you read these passages and consider them, what the scriptures say becomes more beautiful, more magnificent, more astounding. The glory of our exalted Christ, that's a topic that never ceases to captivate the soul. But what the scriptures have to say about Christ is so profound and so beyond our feeble comprehension and understanding that whenever I read many of these passages, one of which Jeff read a little while ago from Proverbs 8, these passages always leave me gasping a bit and thinking to myself, whatever, whatever can those passages mean? Maybe we can understand them just a little. Maybe we can form some general idea of what the scriptures teach concerning the glory of Christ. But we understand so little. We know so little about the glory of our Savior. And so when I speak on this, although there is no question about it that it is a favorite topic of mine, it's a question which at the same time I speak on with some reluctance. Reluctance because I'm always fearful of saying the wrong thing. And reluctance too because I have that awful sense of only scraping the surface just a little bit and speaking of things that are beyond me. Sort of like the old adage, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, that sort of a thing. I always have something of that feeling when we discuss this subject. Nevertheless, God put it in the scriptures for us, of course, and for our consideration. 
God's federal and organic dealings with man in relationship to Christ. An extraordinarily important subject and one of which the scriptures speak a great deal. We're going to try to say some things about that tonight. There are two considerations that at the very outset enter into our discussion of this. First has to do with something that I very briefly mentioned at the very beginning of these classes, at the beginning of the first class, and that is this, that although God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, and although man fell, we must not conceive of the creation of the heavens and of the earth and of the fall of man as being an expression at that time or now of God's final purpose. There are those who hold to that. There are those who hold to the idea that God originally intended to reveal himself in the first creation with Adam at its head, but that the fall intervened and that the revelation of God in the first creation with Adam at its head was something which came to nothing through the foolishness and sin of man. That leaves the impression, of course, although good reformed men in the past have not always meant that, but it leaves the impression and can almost be said to inevitably lead to the conclusion that the purpose of God which he realizes in Jesus Christ after Adam fell, is a kind of a uh, plan B. Plan A failed. God is forced to fall back on plan B. Or, to look at it from a little different point of view, that although God's purpose was to realize his glory, to reveal his glory in the fullest sense of the word, in paradise the first, nevertheless, Adam spoiled it so that God, as it were, was a kind of a spectator to the fall and stood on the sidelines watching almost with horror as Adam chose the side of the devil so that God was wringing his hands, as it were, while Adam went about destroying God's original intention and purpose. Christ becomes a kind of a uh, second choice, something that is second best, in that kind of an idea of things. And indeed, this is one major objection. I want to say a little bit more about that, the Lord willing, next time. But this is one of the major objections to the whole concept of a covenant of works in which Adam stood in a relationship to God of a covenant, all right, but it was a covenant of works. And if Adam had remained obedient for a given period of time, he would have inherited heaven. That's not the case, and we must not proceed in our understanding of God's dealings from such a, such a perspective which, in my estimation, does God grave injustice. But we must understand that right from the very beginning, when God began his work of creation, it was not his intention to glorify himself through the first paradise or through the first Adam, but it was his purpose and his intention from the very outset or from all eternity as he formulated his eternal counsel. 
to glorify himself in Christ. In other words, he had Christ in mind when he performed the work of creation. He had Christ as the goal of all of his works from the very beginning. Adam did not spoil God's work. Adam did not bring about a situation where God was forced to an alternate plan to accomplish his purpose. Christ was always first in the mind and in the will of God. We have to proceed from that viewpoint in order to do justice to the work of God. Although I don't want to make a lot of that tonight because it'll simply steer us aside into areas where we do not really want to go, I want to call your attention to the fact that this immediately has many implications for the doctrine of creation. Already when I was going to Calvin College, that's a very, very long time ago, as you all know, I was taking a course in physical science with uh, Dr. John DeVries, who was really the father of the period theory in the Christian Reformed Church. And when he was teaching us the period theory and confidently predicting that by the end of the year he would have us all persuaded of the correctness of his views, he kept saying all the time, Nevertheless, it doesn't make any difference what you believe concerning the origin of things and concerning an interpretation of Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. If we believe in six literal days of 24 hours, or if we believe that these six days were long periods of time, it isn't going to affect in any respect your salvation or your relation to Christ. That has been the song and the dance of theistic evolutionists ever since that day so many decades ago. If you read the fourth day, for example, by Howard Ventil, he makes the same point. He says, it's all right for me to believe anything I please about the interpretation of Genesis 1 because of the fact that it doesn't have anything to do with my personal relationship to Christ. I can be a servant of Christ, and I am a servant of Christ. I serve him willingly and cheerfully, and what I believe concerning the origin of things has nothing to do with my relation to Christ. The same thing is now heard again in recent weeks by those who are promoting the so-called framework hypothesis. Framework hypothesis, which has suddenly captivated almost the entire conservative church world, and by the conservative church world, I mean such churches as the Canadian Reformed Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the United Reformed Church as well. They're all open to the framework hypothesis, which also denies the literal interpretation of Genesis 1. And again, on the same grounds that Whatever you may believe concerning an interpretation of Genesis 1, it doesn't make any difference about your relationship to Christ. That sort of a talk is, is double talk, it's deceptive, it angers me. It angers me deeply because it's a flat-out lie. And that's why, among other reasons, these views are so desperately, desperately wrong. They deny Christ. 
If it is true, as I am contending tonight, and as I hope to contend through much of the class tonight, that God's purpose from the very outset was in Christ, to glorify himself in Christ, then Genesis 1 has everything in the world to do with Christ. And Proverbs 8, which Jeff read a few moments ago, makes that clear. I don't want to go into a detailed exegesis of Proverbs 8, but I call your attention to the fact, as Jeff mentioned, that in that chapter, wisdom, which is personified, is a reference to Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And of Christ, therefore, as the wisdom of God, Proverbs 8 says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, wherever the earth was, and so on and so forth. In that amazingly profound and wonderful passage in the book of Proverbs, that happens to be one of my favorite passages in the Bible, I guess, but in the light of which the whole book of Proverbs has to be explained, which deals, as you know, with the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is Christ. He was there in the beginning of God's ways. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. Now, I want to proceed a little bit slowly with this idea so that we can try to get it as clearly before our minds as it's possible, at least the little that I'm able to say about it. And I'd like to call your attention, first of all, to the fact that already in Genesis 1, there are evidences of the fact, Genesis 1 and 2, that God's purpose was not intended to be realized in the first creation but God's purpose was from the very outset to be realized in Christ. Call your attention, for example, to Genesis 1, where God is described as creating the heavenly bodies. Verses 14 through 18. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And this is the phrase with which particularly I'm concerned. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. God created the heavenly bodies for this purpose, among others, that those heavenly bodies might be for signs. Now, what in all God's world is makes a sign necessary before creation? Because a sign, by definition, is something in this earth which points to a heavenly reality. It's what a sign is. The sign of the broken bread of the Lord's Supper points to the broken body of Christ, and along with the wine, points to his perfect sacrifice, which he made on the cross. That's a sign. Here, in Genesis 1, the heavenly bodies were created as signs. The scriptures elaborate on that later on. 
in detail in the number of passages. In Malachi, for example, Christ himself is called the Son of Righteousness, not S-O-N, but S-U-N. Son of Righteousness. One of the heavenly bodies was the Son, which was a sign of Christ. On day four, and Psalm 19 makes that clear, where Christ, the Son is pictured as, as a sign of Christ who cometh forth as a bridegroom from his chamber. Same thing is true in 2 Peter 1, where Christ is called the bright and morning star. And anyone who has gotten up early in the morning and seen the morning star in the eastern sky, announcing and heralding the dawning of a new day, cannot help but think of Christ. But nevertheless, that star was there already, created by God for a sign of Christ long before the creation was completed and Adam fell. Second proof is the nature of the creation itself in which God placed Adam. I'd like to point out to you briefly that there was nothing arbitrary about the creation at all. We all know that the creation in which God placed Adam was constituted of the Garden of Eden and that in the midst of the Garden of Eden was paradise and that in the midst of paradise was the tree of life. Now that wasn't an arbitrary pattern that God formed when he originally created this as the dwelling place for Adam, but it was precisely intended to be a picture already at creation and before the fall of the temple of Solomon and the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was constructed in the same way with its outer court comparable to Eden and its inner sanctuary with the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place comparable to paradise and the Holy Place where God himself dwelt is comparable to the Tree of Life. And of course, as we all know, the tabernacle and the temple were pictures that God gave to the old dispensational church of Christ himself and the realization of God's covenant through Christ. You read of that, for example, in, in John 2, where Christ cleansed the temple, and the Jews came to Christ. Who gave you the authority to do this? And the Lord's answer was, I don't need any authority, because the temple is a picture of my body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he spoke of the temple of his body, John tells us, because the old temple, was a picture and a sign of Christ. That was already in the early paradise. You can't help but ponder the creation itself and, and see some of this. Let me just call your attention to a few realities in the creation itself. You take, for example, the fact that when God created man, God created man with an immune system, marvelous immune system which helps man overcome disease. Adam didn't need an immune system. There was no disease. There was no death. But God created it in man with a view to the fall, even though it would not be necessary to use until after the fall. 
Same thing is true of carnivorous animals. The entire jaw, the entire uh, structure of the teeth, the entire uh, inner system of the stomach of the animal, of carnivorous animals, is geared to meat eating. And yet, before the fall, there was no such thing. But God created these animals with a view to their life after the fall, even though Adam had not fallen. And so there are evidences of this throughout the creation. So true is this that the theistic evolutionists are brought up short by this sort of a thing. I read a book just a couple of months ago in which some man in Australia writes that he was finally persuaded of the wrongness of evolutionism and the rightness of a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 by the fact that there could be no death before the fall, as the evolutionists are forced to maintain. So all of these things point to us in astonishing ways, that God's purpose right from the beginning was to glorify himself through Christ. The fall, therefore, and the original creation become God's way of attaining the purpose of Christ. The creation was, in a figure which I have often used, was the stage that God created on which would be enacted the drama of sin and grace and final redemption and salvation in Christ. This is, by the way, if I may interject this for a moment, the reason why in Proverbs 8 Christ is called the wisdom of God. There's a good reason why he's given that name in Proverbs 8. Because he is, from the beginning, the revelation of the all-wise God who does all things with perfect wisdom. That is, perfect wisdom meaning that God knows the best way to attain the highest glory of his own name. Christ is that, you see. He's the wisdom of God. The one through whom Christ, uh, God, in the highest sense of the word, glorifies himself and in the most perfect way through Jesus Christ. Now, that for one thing, we have to continue to bear that in mind. In the second place, I have to come back to something which we talked about also in the first class very briefly in which I promised you we would come back to again. And that is this, that, and, and a great deal of what I have to say tonight is going to be uh, geared to this, that has to do with this separation between the heavenly creation and the earthly creation of which we spoke two weeks ago. You will recall that when we were talking about that two weeks ago, I made mention of the fact that God created these two creations as two separate and distinct creations with a barrier in between which was from every point of view impenetrable and which so completely separated the heavenly creation from the earthly creation that there was no possibility 
at least from the viewpoint of this earthly creation, of ever breaching that barrier that God constructed between the two. We have to proceed from, uh, from this idea. And we have to remember, therefore, that, and this is what I'm going to be at some pains to try to make clear to you tonight, we have to remember that although this was the way God originally created the heavens and the earth, and that's, by the way, the meaning of Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, not the sky and this planet, but the heavenly creation and the earthly universe with all of its stars and planets and all that is in it. That's Genesis 1, verse 1. And by the way, that's almost the only reference to the creation of heaven that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. But be that as it may, that's the meaning of the first verse. But it was not God's intention that uh, intention to allow forever and ever these two creations to continue as two separate creations. He never intended it that way. Although there is this impenetrable barrier between the two, separating the one from the other, it was God's ultimate purpose to bring these two creations together into one creation. All right, let's close. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at the riches of thy grace shown to us. Grace in Christ Jesus, grace in the cross, grace in God become flesh, grace in the mighty power of the Savior who conquered sin and death and hell, grace shown in his powerful resurrection from the dead, grace wrought in our hearts, sovereign grace wrought in our hearts to rescue us from this present evil world and restore us to thy favor and love. May we celebrate in all our life the wonder and power of the grace of our God. Bless what we have discussed tonight. May we love thy truth. and May we love thee, the God of all truth. And may our failures, our many failures to do this, and our evil natures out of which all these sins arise, be graciously and mercifully forgiven in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.